welcome to the Digital Soup Podcast. I'm Samantha Davis, and I've cried every single day this past week for lots of reasons, but uh, one of which is that I had to re-record this episode twice now because of a stupid-ass microphone purchase that I made for aesthetic purposes almost exclusively. There is also a laziness factor, but with the amount of work that I've had to do uh, to fix this mistake, I think it's been canceled out. So, before I start this episode, though, I would like to add that Black, Indigenous, and People of Color's Lives Matter, as well as LGBTQ plus people, happy Pride Month. And I also forgot to mention that in the last episode, Baby Corn, check it out if you can, another thing that is interesting about corn, specifically maize, that without human intervention in the germination process and farming process, corn just wouldn't exist. It would just cease to exist. There's almost impossible to find wild corn. I'm sure at some point, uh, wind interaction might have done that and like, you know, the stars aligned, but really it's not going to happen without a farmer going in and hand germinating the corn. It's a very difficult process. But today, we'll be talking about the mother sauces of French cuisine. And I would like to thank the wiki page for French cuisine for the following information I'm about to spout. Because I did know about these guys, that I'm about, these men that I'm about to mention because of culinary school. And we did have to talk about the history of the professional kitchen. It was all very interesting, but... I don't, I'm not good with names in general, and French names are really hard for me to remember. Sorry to my one French viewer, by the way. Eh, you're still listening. So, I needed help with the details, and later on, after we discuss the history, I am going to talk have a little rant about the Eurocentrism of fine dining. So, stay tuned for that. So... We're going to first talk about chefs Francois-Pierre Lavarin and Marie-Antoine Curren. And the two of them developed the now classical French cuisine. So before this, French cuisine was influenced by the surrounding countries of Spain, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, and Belgium. So Lavarin and Curren wanted to shift away from these foreign influences and develop a style of food that was a French with a capital F. And as you can imagine, cheese and wine became a major part of this new cuisine uh, because it's a major export of the country. While French cuisine was codified and defined by these two men, regional variations still existed all over the country. This also changed with Chef Auguste Escoffier, who is considered to be the father of the professional kitchen. And by father of the professional kitchen, I do mean that he actually is the one credited for coming up with the traditional brigade system that is actually mainstay in a lot of kitchens that I have worked in. And he also, there are these really cool drawings that we were shown in when I was in school of him drawing basically like what a chef's jacket looks like today and what a toque looks like. And it was really interesting that he also decided to be a fashion designer and make this really amazing, like, chef coat that is still in use today in many kitchens. And for his creation of the concept, haute cuisine. This also means high cooking, and not the kind of cooking you're probably thinking of, uh, that Black American citizens have disproportionately been jailed for, and are not being released from jail, now that it is legal to practice in this, and white participants in this new field are capitalizing on it. 
I am talking about marijuana, if you're wondering. <laughs> but uh, haute cuisine is also called grand cuisine, and it's associated with gourmet restaurants. Having worked in that field, I don't necessarily associate haute cuisine with gourmet restaurants. I associate high prices and meticulous work by talented cooks and chefs for shit wages. So this style excluded a lot of the regional variations of French cooking and made it difficult to and made it seem difficult to be a proficient home cook in this classical French cuisine. So over time, a lot of regional dishes did break into this culinary scene and were made famous across the country. For example, that one Disney movie with the rat. What was it called? The Rescuers? The Great Mouse Detective? Hmm. You know, I could keep going with this Ratatouille joke, but there are almost too many rodent-themed Disney properties. I had like four more before I needed to stop. So, French cooking has been a mainstay in many Western cultures. It's viewed very highly, and its influence can be felt in f almost every fine dining restaurant today, as well as cooking in cooking schools across North America, in my experience. I can't speak for all of them, but it's probably most of them around the world. One of my problems with that is that in culinary school, French cooking is studied almost as the baseline and other cultures are seen as almost less than and not as deserving of praise. So my basic and fundamentals class was entirely French based and there were later classes that studied cuisines like Latin, Asian, or American. Notably in American cuisine, we did not study traditional indigenous food. We made fry bread once and that was it. And looking back, I really don't like that. It's not that I don't appreciate or enjoy French food. I think it's delicious and I think it's a really interesting concept. However, I just disagree with the Eurocentric idea of French food being the best or the baseline. And I was also very frustrated that there wasn't, that there wasn't, I was also frustrated that there weren't classes for African food, Middle Eastern food, or Indian food. I've had all these cuisines multiple times in my life, and they're delicious and complex, and I believe they're just as worthy of study as French food. I did not have enough money to take all three of these cultural subsets offered in my school. I was able to take my la uh, Latin class, which was very interesting, but again, it was highly broad, and I feel like, you know, I don't feel cheated by it, but I just wish that we could have done more research into it. One of my friends did end up taking the Asian class, and I don't think I have to tell you that it was incredibly broad. Just think about how huge the continent of Asia is. And also the Sichuan cuisine of China, which is just a small subset of a very huge collection of regional cuisines in this country. There's a school in China just for Sichuan cuisine. And it is absolutely and Sichuan cuisine is absolutely not the same as the ramen, soba, or sushi made in Japan, or the complex Filipino cuisine that's made of, that is made up of more than a hundred different cultures. So the Philippines has been influenced by Ch Indian, Chinese, Spanish, and American foods through colonization and cultural injection. Just, you know, <laughs> just to keep it grounded here. So while I do believe that learning about French food is important, and I'm not saying we shouldn't study it, I really wanted to preface this talk about what I view as an important skill to have is knowing the five mother sauces, because you can branch out, and I'll talk about that later. 
I really did want to preface this with my thoughts on the French-centric culinary ideal. So, on to the mother sauces. So, we're talking about the five mother sauces and their subsets, but before that, learning how to make sauce, you need to learn how to make roux. So, that's spelled R-O-U-X, and it's not a sauce. Uh, roux is actually an essential tool in creating a sauce. So it's simply an equal mix of fat, which is usually butter, and flour. This thickener can be cooked to different colors for different thickening strengths. There's three colors used for descriptors that you need to know about. White roux adds very little flavor, but is the most powerful thickener, and it's cooked for the shortest time. So the middle strength roux is called a blonde roux, and that's cooked for about five minutes longer than you would cook a white roux. And finally, the darkest roux is also is called a brown roux, and it's about a quarter of the thickening power of the white roux and contains a deep toasted flavor. It's got a really gorgeous color. Mostly, I would describe it as almost the color of coffee. And in my experience, Cajun cuisine utilizes brown roux the most out of any of the cultures that I have studied. haven't studied them all, so if you know of a different style of cooking that use it, utilizes brown roux, let me know. So, the sauces. The five sauces that we're going to talk about, they're called bechamel, velouté, hollandaise, espagnol, and tomato. Easy, right? And they're all very interesting. We're going to start with bechamel, and this sauce is also called a white sauce. It's traditionally made with milk and a white roux. And my favorite way to alter this sauce in the kitchen is to make a Mornay sauce. And this is a bechamel sauce with cheese added. And one of the derivatives of Mornay sauce is beer cheese, which is probably the most familiar to our Midwestern listeners. And this sauce, instead of being milk thickened with white roux, it starts with reducing beer and other aromatics like onions or garlic and then making a bechamel with that, and then making a Mornay sauce, as in like a cheese sauce. So Mornay and beer cheese, they're really great, and I think they're much more fun to have on nachos than nacho cheese out of a can. <laughs> they're also great, uh, a great topper for fries, and the Mornay sauce is actually the traditional base for mac and cheese. So moving on to Volute, I consulted Kelly Burke, uh, I am crediting her because I could not, for the life of me, think of what I would want to put a velouté on. And she was in culinary school with me. She was savory, uh, She was a savory major. I was a pastry major, so she knows more about this stuff and has more opinions. And she's very talented. So I consulted Kelly on how she uses velouté in the kitchen. Velouté is uh, also classified as a white sauce like bechamel but it's created with a white stock base, which is customarily like a chicken stock, but you could also use a fish or vegetable stock. And it's thickened with dairy-like cream or eggs. Kelly usually uses velouté as a pan sauce or a base for soup. She also favors aurore sauce, which is created by adding tomato paste and butter to velouté. And I just gotta say, I totally agree with her. Adding tomato paste and butter to anything will probably make it taste a lot better. So Aurore sauce, it can be used in a lot of different dishes, but my personal favorite way is a fresh new take on Eggs Benedict by replacing the hollandaise that goes on top of the poached eggs. It's almost like 
I thought it sounded almost like a uh, Bloody Mary with like the tomato and even though I hate Bloody Mary, I feel like this would taste really good. So now that we've talked about hollandaise, let's just review what it is. It's uh, hollandaise is a mother sauce that is an emulsion of egg yolks, clarified butter, and lemon juice. And before I move on, clarified butter is actually another way of saying ghee, which is an Indian preparation for butter, uh, where you skim the milk solids off the top. And to do that, you melt the butter in a pan, very, very low heat. We're not trying to brown it. And the white sort of scum looking stuff that floats to the top, you just gently scoop out just the scum with a little spoon. And then it's clarified butter. Again, you could also just use ghee. G-H-E-E, by the way. Um, so a fresh take on hollandaise is adding creamy avocado to the recipe for avo days, which I just found out about in my like deep dive for different ways to have some of these mother sauces. I thought the color looked really nice, but I'm not really sure how long it will stay like that. There is lemon juice in the sauce already, so it should keep the avocado from oxidizing too soon, but also might look really gross later. <laughs> and one of the more popular variants of hollandaise, especially in steakhouses, is Bernays sauce. And you swap out the lemon juice with white wine vinegar and you add and you switch out tarragon, which I really enjoy using in the kitchen. It's got an almost licorice flavor, but it's not too overpowering. And that sauce it gets poured over a nice steak and it pairs really well with it, which I don't miss eating steak. I have sworn off eating red meat for a while. My parents who I live with, they have not. So sometimes dinner time can get a little tense because they do not care about not eating red meat, which is fine. I'll just eat a potato or something. It's not actually that tense. They don't, <laughs> they're not policing what I eat. Moving on. Espanol sauce. Uh, is a mother sauce that is also known as a very basic brown sauce. It's a base for a traditional demi-glace as well. So Espanol is like velouté in that it is a stock thickened, except Espanol is thickened with a roux. And the stock in Espanol is usually beef with some pureed tomato and usually reduced more after that. And it's almost always paired with a meat-based dish, which I understand meat stock, uh, beef stock with beef probably tastes good. <laughs> and I actually enjoy pouring this over some steak. Like I said, fries are great with this sauce, I have to say. And I think it's a, I hope the Canadians don't come for me with about this, but I think it's a good swap out for the gravy in poutine. It's a very rich flavor. I'm not saying gravy's bad. I love gravy, but I think it could be an interesting way to have a different kind of poutine. But just in case you were wondering, demi-glace is a simple to make sauce with a rich flavor and, and can add dimension to a simple cut of meat. So demi-glace is a base for, it can be a base for other sauces or it can be used on its own. I enjoy the versatility of Espanol and demi-glace as it can be used just as a sauce or as a added to a soup or a tomato sauce to add a depth of flavor 
or it can be added to a plain tomato sauce to add a really interesting depth of flavor. Uh, and finally, we're going to talk about tomato sauce, which, I mean, who hasn't had spaghetti with tomato sauce before or who hasn't had their mom make that? And the difference between this sauce and what you get out of the can from the store is the amount of effort that it takes to make this and the better flavor. I just have to say homemade tomato sauce does taste so much better than the stuff from the can. Uh, the traditional Italian technique for tomato sauce is to reduce it. But in my research, I did find that sometimes people use roux to thicken this at the end. I wouldn't recommend it. It thickens just fine on its own, if you ask me. You can add all sorts of aromatics to this while you're making it, or you can just make it completely plain as a marinara. And you can amp up your sandwiches by taking the reduction quite a bit further and adding a little sugar. You can make a tomato jam, and I happen to think it goes great on sandwiches or on toast in the morning. I made a huge batch actually a few Christmases ago and brought that to uh, brought that around my work and it seemed like a big hit with some people and some people literally kept it on their station for a whole year. I went around giving out Christmas presents the next Christmas at my, that same job and I was going around and someone kept like this rotted can, <laughs> this rotted little pot of my tomato jam. <laughs> kind of hurt I have to say if you don't want it just take it home and not eat it don't leave it for me to find at work rude <laughs> but actually one of the more traditional dishes that uses tomato sauce that I find absolutely delicious for breakfast is shakshuka it is traditionally middle eastern and it is a traditional middle eastern and Af north african dish and it's poached eggs in a spicy tomato sauce and it's usually served with some bread on the side for dipping and you like scoop it up. It's so good. And I just have to say that a runny egg yolk is just one of my favorite things to eat in the mornings. I love a little runny egg. I just, I love a runny egg in the mornings, especially when it runs over whatever it's sitting on top of a nice poached egg because it's almost like another sauce. And I just think a well-poached egg just can make my morning sometimes if it's well done. That's the dorkiest thing I think I've ever said. <laughs> All right, guys, I'll let you go in just a few more minutes, but first we have to do the book and the tool of the month. So a little off from my usual recommendations of cookbooks and food-related stuff, I'm recommending Who Cooked the Last Supper by Rosalind Miles. There while there is a lot of discussion of food preparation, it's usually focused on early hunter-gatherer practices and why such practices were important. So it's not necessarily like giving you recipes, but I did find it incredibly interesting. I hope you will too. So Miles is a professor who founded the Center of Women's Studies in Coventry. And while I have not finished it yet, I'm absolutely in love with this book. The first chapter really spoke to the anthropologist in me, and it was talking about the myth of man the hunter, woman the gatherer. While these activities were usually separated among genders, the myth about this practice is that 
man was bringing home the most calories. In fact, women were the reason that hunter-gatherer tribes did not starve because they provided about 80% of the calories. And a lot of people don't seem to realize that hunter-gatherer societies, especially the more complex ones like Native Americans, is that they had a really sophisticated system of storage in that they had really huge granaries and were smoking a lot of their food and uh, were smoking a lot of their meat and generally they were able to provide they were able to prepare and store enough food for the whole year in just a couple of weeks maybe a month because they were that advanced and I also loved in reading this book that there was zero respect for the early sexist anthropologists, and I am living for it. There's so much dry British sass in this book. She also cited evidence of women being the first to make tools out of necessity for gathering as part of the hunter-gatherer culture, uh, like seed beaters, which um, they look like really similar to a tennis racket, except they're sort of curved inward in a bowl shape around where the racket is. And there's, it's more of like a basket in the area where it's like woven and it's sort of curved. The whole handle is sort of curved. So it's like a hook. It's a very interesting tool. I really enjoyed this book because one of my least favorite parts of history and early anthropology is the erasure of women's contributions to societies. This book is doing the great work of bringing these women's contributions to the forefront for the first time in way too long. You have to think about for a while that people didn't want to educate their wives and a lot of written record was written by men, not necessarily about women. And when we do start to get women's accounts of t uh, times past, it's usually very rich women who have this opportunity. Poor classes didn't really have the ability to write in their journal every day about what happened. So modern anthropology is doing the great work of bringing their lives to the forefront. And I do have to say, one of my favorite segments so far is the ustress argument, as in biological shift to menstruation, to regular menstruation that we know of today, from the cycles of other apes. Rosalind Miles make the, makes the argument that this biological shift has given humans a concept of time and has uh, let us be the dominant force on the planet because we just have, there's just so many of us. So ancient bones and sticks have been found, this is her evidence, uh, with 28 to 30 marks cut into them. Women have made these first calendars to track their cycle because what else comes every month that someone in a hunter-gatherer society or any society, uh, early society, really, what would you need to track that comes every month, you know? It could technically be related to the moon, but I feel like it, that would be more pictorial, maybe. That's just my personal view. And also this biological shift meant that humans were able to become pregnant at any time during their fertile years instead of when they were in heat like apes. So like, I'm not on my period right now. Let's get personal. I could technically get pregnant right now, especially if I'm very fertile. But an ape, if she's not in heat, she has no way of producing a baby, which is really interesting. And that is seen as 
why there are so many people on Earth right now compared to how few apes, especially like gorillas and stuff, since we're fairly re closely related to them in the evolutionary tree. It's very interesting that the numbers game and admittedly we have contributed contributed to that big divide between us and apes because of our destroying of their habitats but that's another that's another conversation for another day i don't think i'm ready to have that right now oh and the tool of the week is my baby my cast iron dutch oven she's gorgeous it's a Chrissy Teigen branded Dutch oven. It was super cheap at Target. Maybe don't, don't go to Target right now because of the because uh, of the pandemic. I usually use this pan for baking bread. Actually, it's really great for getting a nice crisp crust and a really good oven spring because you close the lid for the beginning so it steams itself and it gets this really nice rise. And then at the end, you take and then you know close to the end, maybe like two-thirds of the way through the baking time, you take the lid off, and then you let it crisp up and get this gorgeous crust. And it's also really great with sauces, like I'm talking about today, and stuff that needs to reduce for a long time. Before I go, I have been putting myself out there in the podcasting world. I went on, I'm a member of the podcast subreddit, and I talk to all kinds of creators, and, because I've been trying to get an ad switch going with other small podcasts and someone finally responded so if i get their ad in time you're gonna listen to drunk in the library uh it's two really great women they have a great history podcast it's really fun to listen to i've listened to quite a few episodes really interesting like niche pieces of history i believe right now they are rereading the harry potter series if you'd like to hear modern thoughts on that Check them out if you can. Drunk in the library. Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Brooke. And we're the hosts of Drunk in the Library. A podcast about the strange, the unusual, and the downright stupid things you never thought that you needed to know about. Come hang out with us every Sunday while we get drunk and try to teach you something new. And make sure you check us out on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website, drunkinthelibrary.com. Or listen to us wherever you find your podcasts.